listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Now, it's not normal here at Brockport First Baptist to do a disclaimer before the scripture reading. That's not something we do very often, although it has happened maybe two or three times before, because honestly, the Bible is really not a book for children. (laughs) Um, But at any rate, this is a disclaimer for what you're about to hear. We are studying the book of Romans together as a church right now, and our scripture reading for today is Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. And I actually have two important disclaimers for this one. The first is for parents. Uh, If you're a parent, uh, who knows, you might already be familiar with this passage, and if not, you can always hit pause and read it real quick. But this passage deals with some very adult subject matter, and and we are going to get into that in our sermon today. And I'm talking like, R-rated, not PG, all right? Um, So if you have little ears uh, in the room who you would prefer uh, not to have to answer certain questions to right now, it's not a bad idea to skip this one um, or maybe let the kids go off and play uh, while you watch the sermon. In fact, if if you're worried about it, you can actually jump uh, to this timestamp right now. There should be a a timestamp on the screen somewhere. And you can catch the end of this service. And then you can always... Come back maybe later tonight or tomorrow uh, when the kids are out of the house or asleep and you can watch the sermon then. That's disclaimer number one. Second disclaimer is for members of the LGBTQ community and for fellow allies like myself. This passage is a clobber passage. It's a passage that has often been used to beat up on LGBTQ plus people and to exclude them from the church. Now here at Brockport First Baptist, we are a welcoming and affirming congregation, which is a a fancy kind of Christianese religious way to say that we work toward the full inclusion of everyone, regardless of sexual orientation and gender identity. So members of the LGBTQ community, uh, they can belong to our church, they can take communion, serve, lead, teach, get ordained, get married, what have you. They are full and equal part of our congregation. And that's a commitment that, as your pastor, I take very seriously. But a lot of welcoming and affirming churches would just skip over a passage like this. They just, like, jump right over it, ignore it, so as to not trigger or unintentionally offend anybody. And make no mistake about it, this is a very triggering passage, especially if you're a part of the LGBTQ community and you've had this very passage or one similar to it used against you as a weapon. So I'm giving you a heads up right now before we get to the scripture reading in case you want to sit this one out. But as the pastor of this church, I think it's actually crucial for congregations like ours to read, study, wrestle with, and especially preach on difficult texts like these. Because if we don't do it, then the only voices left to weigh in are going to be from the folks who want to use a passage like this to do harm. Being welcoming and affirming doesn't mean that we ignore passages that that appear on the surface to challenge our perspective. Instead, we actually need to work extra hard to grapple with and understand passages like these so that we know what they're actually talking about. Because here at Brockport First Baptist, we are not welcoming and affirming in spite of what we find in the Bible. We welcome everyone without discrimination because we take the Bible so seriously. 
And it's my hope, especially if you're someone who has been hurt by this passage in the past, it's my hope that this sermon might be uplifting to you, that it would be a a source of encouragement, that it would maybe equip you to defend yourself when folks try to take the Bible out of context and do harm. And who knows, this sermon might even redeem the Apostle Paul for you. Anyway, there you have it. That's our disclaimer for this one. Uh, Now I'm going to hand it over to Joanne with our scripture reading for today. Hello and good morning to my church family. I hope everyone is doing well and I'm happy to say happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers out there in every facet that you are a mother. Physically, emotionally, it's a blessing. My biggest highlight for myself is being a mother. Um, And I just hope you have a very happy pandemic Mother Day. So today's challenging scripture reading is from Romans 1 verses 18 to 32, and I will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And God bless you, Pastor Dan, for tackling this one. Good luck. Thanks for that, Joanne. And again, happy Mother's Day to you and to all the moms out there. 
Uh, you know, when I, when I was planning out this series like months ago and thinking about how we'd tackle the Book of Romans, it did not occur to me that this particular passage was going to fall on Mother's Day. But um, here we are. Uh, if you're watching this service with your mom, uh, buckle up because things are about to get awkward. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned in the disclaimer, we are studying the Book of Romans right now as a church. In fact, we're only uh, three weeks into this series. So if you want to go back and catch up on anything you missed, it's not too late to do that. The first two weeks were largely background material and context, but man, from from here on out, we are in it. We are going to be going uh, section by section, piece by piece through this book, really wrestling with it and getting into the nitty gritty of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Now, just to like pause for a second and zoom out a bit and think about where this passage fits big picture in the book of Romans. Paul's thesis is that God is faithful. And that God's faithfulness is being revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can go back and listen to last week's sermon if you want to hear all about that. But to get into God's faithfulness, to illustrate the extent of of God's love and faithfulness to us, Paul starts out by talking about how human beings have been unfaithful. And he starts in this passage we're looking at today by talking about Gentile unfaithfulness. And in in chapter 2, which we'll talk about next week, He talks about Jewish unfaithfulness because remember, Paul is Jewish and he's writing to a Christian community in Rome that is split between Jews and Gentiles. So so for what it's worth, he hits both sides. Um, But the big picture idea here is that God is faithful to save us even when human beings have been unfaithful. God's love and faithfulness does not depend on our obedience. So even even though we get all this wrath of God talk in our reading for today, the core of Paul's message here is really love and grace. But we've got an extra little hurdle with this one. Because in recent years, Romans 1, 18-32 has become a clobber passage. It's one of about a half dozen passages in the Bible that are used by some Christians to marginalize and exclude LGBTQ plus people. Now, most of these clobber passages are pretty easy to debunk. Um, The ones we find in the Old Testament either depict violent instances of like male-on-male rape. Uh, Think of like Sodom and Gomorrah, if you know that pleasant little story. And, and, And my goodness, if you don't, Read Genesis 19 sometime today. Heck, uh, read it with your mom if you need something fun to do for Mother's Day. Um, On second thought, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. Um, But in the Old Testament, this sort of thing is either depicted in a violent context like that, um, or it's part of the Jewish law, which as Christians, we are not held to. You know, we, we can wear polyester, eat bacon, work on Saturdays without being stoned to death, stuff like that. And then whenever you come across the word homosexual in the New Testament, realize first that that is a word that was coined in the late 1800s. It didn't even show up in English translations of the Bible until the 1940s. Prior to that, that word would usually get translated as like male prostitute, pedophile, sexual deviant, all ideas that are actually way closer to what the New Testament authors were actually talking about. So all of these so-called clobber passages that supposedly label homosexuality as a sin just fall apart with the slightest bit of scrutiny. Until we get to this one. Romans 1, 18-32 is like that last pillar. This is the one where even when anti-gay Christians will acknowledge the fact that those other Bible passages aren't really talking about homosexuality as we understand it today, this is the one they cling to. 
If you belong to the LGBTQ community, you've probably had this passage used against you at some point uh, to tell you that you don't belong in the church. And as an ally of that community, when I get into debates with anti-gay Christians, this is always a proof text that they point to where, where Paul begins his theological argument in the book of Romans by labeling homosexuality a sin. I believe that's a reading that completely ignores the context of this passage, and uh, that's what we're going to talk about together today. Because here at Brockport First Baptist, we believe that everyone is invited into God's family. We refuse to discriminate on the basis of gender identity, sexual orientation, race, class, age, ability, what have you. And that's because we take the Bible very seriously. The Bible is the inspired word of God. It's the chief authority of the church. It's a book that I've dedicated my life to studying, teaching, and trying to understand. And it's a book that really needs to be read and interpreted well to avoid misuse. And the mission of Jesus as revealed to us in scripture is a mission of inclusion. I mean, read the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is continually bringing outsiders in community, continually inviting people who don't belong to become part of the party. I mean, he invites prostitutes to dine at the house of priests. He praises the faith of Gentiles. In fact, Jesus is always getting into trouble in the Gospels for hanging out with sinners. That ministry of inclusion that Jesus started continues with the early church in the book of Acts when just boundary after boundary is torn down by the church as the family of God grows to include more and more people. That's largely driven by the Apostle Paul, by the way. So to understand how all of that squares <clears throat> with this particular passage, we've really got to get into the text and understand it. So, so let's do that. And I'm actually going to reread our passage for today so that it's nice and fresh. And I'm actually going to back up a little bit, start in verse 16 of Romans 1, which we focused on last week, just to give us more of the context and more of the flow of Paul's argument here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things God has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor God as God or give thanks to God. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal human beings, or birds, or four-footed animals, <clears throat> or reptiles. Now let's just pause here for a moment. Paul makes reference in verse 17 to God's righteousness, or God's faithfulness. Then he launches into this depiction of human unfaithfulness. And his focus here is on idolatry. Don't miss that. God's power and nature, according to Paul, have been clear to human beings since the creation of the world, which... There's a whole sermon we could probably preach right there, right? I mean, we're already spending three weeks in Romans 1, so we're not going to do that. But human beings knew God. They should have understood who God is. And instead, we have responded to God's grace 
by worshiping idols, worshiping created things instead of the creator. So the core sin being addressed in this passage is idolatry. Let's keep going. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. There's that idolatry piece again. Uh, The creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural And in the same way, also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. So again, right there at the end of our passage, Paul brings it back to his main point. God is faithful, but human beings are unfaithful. Human beings have turned away from God, specifically Gentiles in in this thinking. We've turned away from God and worshiped idols. And that has led to envy, malice, slander, and all that other stuff that Paul lists at the end of the passage. Now, if you're like me, your main experience with this text has been when certain Christians use it as a proof text against homosexuality. Never mind that the word homosexual isn't even used here, and that the very next verse, verse 1 of chapter 2, tells us specifically not to judge. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You know, never mind that this all leads right into a verse where we are explicitly told not to judge others. Never mind that. Plenty of Christians have no problem using this passage to judge and exclude their gay and lesbian neighbors. Funny how that works, huh? You know, they have to listen to the part about sex, but we don't have to listen to the part about judgment. Isn't that convenient? Now, to get to that point, you not only have to ignore the piece at the end about not judging, you also pretty much have to ignore the entire context of Paul's argument here. The so-called traditional reading of this passage only really works if you divorce verses 26 and 27 from everything surrounding it. Because remember, Paul is talking about Gentile idolatry. That's the root sin he's critiquing here. All the evil practices he touches on, including all that sex stuff, but also that long list of vices that starts in in verse 29, that's all described as the outcome of pagan idolatry. Human beings have sinned by turning away from God and worshiping idols, and the punishment for that sin, the, the way God's wrath is demonstrated, is that God essentially lets us go. God hands us over to all this degrading, destructive stuff when we turn away from God. So what we need to be asking here, especially when we find when we when we come to verses 26 and 27, is what's the connection between idolatry and the sort of sexual practices Paul is describing here? 
Because if this is just a blanket condemnation of like same-sex relationships, that doesn't make a lot of sense. For one, I happen to know a lot of gay and lesbian people. And none of them, to my knowledge at least, are bowing down to statues that look like birds and reptiles. And I've also known a lot of people who are guilty of the stuff listed in verses 29 to 32. You know, envy, deceit, gossip, boastfulness. Heck, I've been guilty of a lot of that myself. And while I'm sure that like LGBTQ plus people struggle with that kind of stuff too, I know plenty of heterosexuals who are envious and deceitful and boastful. To my knowledge, being gay or straight does not seem to make you more or less prone to any of that. So what's Paul talking about here? While the connection between certain sexual practices and idolatry might not be very obvious to us, but it would have been super obvious to Paul's original audience. Because they lived in Rome, which was a city filled with idols and notorious throughout the world for strange and often degrading sexual practices. And the most obvious context for this sort of thing in the ancient world would have been pagan fertility cults. Religion has always been bound up with sex and power. That's, that's really nothing new. Uh, some of the earliest form of organized religion were these cults centered around fertility gods and goddesses. Because remember, the ancient world did not have modern science and medicine like we do today. So if, if you were a couple struggling to get pregnant, you didn't go to a fertility clinic. You went to the local fertility temple where you would offer a sacrifice to one of the many fertility gods and where it was quite common to then engage in all sorts of ritualized sex acts with temple prostitutes as a means of securing the favor of the gods. So like, to think about this concretely, if I'm a man in the ancient world and I am struggling to get my wife pregnant, I might take a choice animal from my flock or maybe some money, go to the fertility temple, offer my sacrifice, pay my tithe, and then get sodomized by a male temple prostitute. You know, receiving the seed of the gods, which I can then go home, sleep with my wife, and have a better chance of getting her pregnant. Thank God for modern medicine, right? I mean, my goodness. And boy, parents watching at home, I really hope you took me up on that offer to, to sit the kids out on this one. Um, yeah, but that's how it worked. That's the sort of thing that was done back then. We, we know that the early Christians struggled with this stuff because Paul has to tell them in some of his other uh, letters not to have sex with temple prostitutes. But that is the sort of thing Paul's audience might have had in mind. And now there is some debate on exactly how widespread that particular sort of fertility cult activity was in Rome at the time this letter was written. But that was definitely the sort of thing that a Jewish audience or a Jewish author like Paul even might have associated with Gentiles. Jews in the first century basically thought of us Gentiles as a bunch of sexually depraved idolaters, basically. So Paul is not talking specifically about same-sex attracted people here. He's talking about all Gentiles being implicated in this sort of practice. And the Christian community in Rome would have certainly been aware of stuff like this taking place. 
You had the ecstasy cults, which were very common in ancient Rome. Uh, these were uh, religious gatherings where people would get together in a temple, they'd offer sacrifices, they'd dance, they'd drink a bunch of wine, and then they would basically have an orgy. That was commonplace. And you also had a shining example of this kind of thing in the form of Emperor Nero. Do you guys remember Nero? We talked about him a couple weeks ago. He had just become emperor in the years leading up to Paul writing this letter. And Nero is notorious to this day, really, for all the sick, violent, sexual crap he was into. Nero had a very public sexual relationship with his mother. Um, he was known to keep young male slaves in the palace who he would basically use as his sexual playthings. Nero hosted orgies. And he was also known to roam the streets of the city at night with his bodyguards, sexually assaulting random passers-by. I mean, this is just awful, awful stuff. This is stuff that, like, anyone in their right mind would be justified to reject and be disgusted by. But understand that as the emperor, Nero was not just a political figure. He was a religious figure. The emperor was viewed as a living god. His image was everywhere, on the money, in the temples. The most widespread idol in Rome at the time of Paul was the emperor. That's why we have so many statues and busts of the emperors today. There were shrines to them everywhere. So once again, this connection Paul is making between idolatry and exploitative sexual practices would have been very familiar to his audience. This is what Paul is talking about. This is the context that actually makes sense of Paul's argument here. The Christians in Rome were used to seeing all sorts of debased sexual practices on display in their city, and Paul traces all of that back to the root sin of idolatry. Because once we dishonor our creator, it is only a matter of time before we'll be dishonoring our fellow creatures, our fellow human beings. Because the love of God and love of neighbor are always connected. You cannot have one without the other. That's core to Jesus' teaching. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If we turn away from God and worship created things, it won't be long until we find ourselves exploiting those things. And I'll tell you what, you really have to ignore a lot of context here to read Romans 1 as a blanketed condemnation of same-sex relationships. I don't think that's what we're dealing with here at all. But understanding the background that Paul's audience would have brought to this text and the true context of this passage really highlights how it applies to our own context. Because unless you've been living under a rock, you already know that sex and power and exploitation and even religion, all of that is still very much intertwined today. We don't frequent fertility cults anymore, but we certainly worship sex in our culture. We commodify it. We consume it. We buy and sell it. Look at the porn industry. Look at all the marriages and the families that have been ruined by that stuff. Look at the bodies of most porn stars. Look at how these, how these women and men have modified and abused their bodies to make them more visually appealing to a mass audience. And then take a look at the statues of fertility gods and goddesses from the ancient world. They're not all that different. Look at how we worship celebrities in our culture and turn them into sexual icons, exploiting their bodies for our pleasure. 
Look at apps like Tinder that promote hookup culture, commodifying sex, selling it, cheapening it, turning it into, into a sport, a, a source of self-gratification and profit. And then look at the connection in our own culture between sex and power. I mean, how many presidents, how many senators, judges, other elected leaders, how many presidential candidates have found themselves embroiled in sex scandals with credible allegations of sexual misconduct? And how many of them get away with it? Not much has changed in 2,000 years, unfortunately. If you have enough money and enough power today, man, you can have sex with just about anybody you want, regardless of their consent, and you will probably get away with it. In fact, you might even be praised for it. You might not even lose support among your self-described Christian constituents. And that brings us to the end of our reading, to verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. Woe to anyone who uses Romans chapter 1 to exclude or condemn someone else. Because as my mother used to tell me when I was a kid, when you point one finger, you've got four fingers pointed right back at you. Paul was not in the business of excluding people from the church. Even people who had sex with temple prostitutes, right? Like, <laughs> he told them to knock it off, which, by the way, is still pretty good advice. You know, if you, if you ever find yourself tempted to visit a pagan fertility cult, you should probably not do that. Uh, but, but even those folks still had a place in the church. We are right to condemn the sort of violent, exploitative sexual practices that Paul condemns in this passage. When sex is cheapened or worshipped or used by powerful people to exploit those beneath them, we are right to be furious about that. God is furious about that. The wrath of God is being displayed over that. Because when we turn away from God, it inevitably leads to a dishonoring of other people and a dishonoring of ourselves. That's the point of this passage. Paul wasn't talking about God-fearing LGBTQ folks who are in loving, committed, monogamous relationships. No. He is talking about when idolatry leads to violence, selfishness, and exploitation. That is the ugly side effect of human unfaithfulness to God. But the good news is that even when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. God does not turn God's back on us. Instead, God shows up in the form of Jesus to rescue us, heal us, and save us, both from being exploited by others, but also from our own destructive and exploitative tendencies. That's Declobbering Romans. Let's pray. God, I feel like we've prayed this a lot lately. But thank you for challenging passages like these. Thank you for making us dig a, deep, uh, a bit deeper, maybe even challenging some of our own biases and prejudices to, to really get at the heart of this passage. 
God, I pray for anyone watching or listening to this right now who is a member of the LGBTQ plus community, folks who have been marginalized, condemned, dehumanized, far too often by people who claim to be Christians. God, I pray that you would meet our gay and lesbian friends where they are. I pray that you would restore them from the unfair and often violent treatment they have received. And God, for folks who've been told that they don't have a place in the church, I pray that you would find them, reveal your love to them, and lead them to Christian communities where they can find hope, acceptance, love, and wholeness. And God, help us to be that kind of church. Help us to speak out whenever the Bible is twisted out of context to do harm. Mold us into the kind of community that stands up for people who are being exploited by men in power. The kind of church where everyone belongs. All God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at Brockport FB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.